Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. You know, I think the question that most folks are going to ask is about the track record. But ultimately, you know, I think what's more important than the actual track record is what, what is the plan B in the event something doesn't go as planned with that, that particular property, you know, financially as planned with that particular property? Like, do they have a plan in place? And if so, what is that? I, I want to know what the fallback plan is and also if they're financially capable of carrying the weight and the burden of pulling that property through any of those variables that might come up. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, I've got a very special guest. I, I think I said say that mostly, but I really believe at this time because uh, I'm excited to have Kevin Bupp on the show. Kevin, well, I'll, I'll read more about you and then I'll tell you my own personal experience. So Kevin is the founder and CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors, which invests in mobile home parks, parking lots, apartments, offices, and single family homes all across the US. He's got 16 years of experience in educating investors to locate, acquire, and create higher than average returns from the widely misunderstood niche of mobile home park investing. He shares his expertise through the Mobile Home Academy and also is the host of the Real Estate Investing for Cashflow podcast, which has become one of the hottest real estate podcasts on iTunes. And, and that's exactly how I found you probably five years ago was through that podcast when I was really, really getting ramped up and like really immersing myself in real estate. I think your podcast was one of the first that really got me going. So, so much appreciated. Thank you for, for helping set me on this path. <laughs> Absolutely, Kent. Thanks for having me here, man. Excited to be here. Yeah, no, this is great. And so, so Kevin, you've accomplished a ton, right? I mean, just reading through your bio, but give, give the folks a, some background on kind of where you started and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I need to update that bio. It's uh, I think it's over 20 years now. So I got my, oh, yeah, got my star. Go. Yeah, yeah. So that's a little, <laughs> a little dated, but it is what it is. Uh, yeah. So I, you know, leading into the story, how I got started, I bought my first property at the age of 20. But ultimately, I, I always like to joke and say that real estate kind of found me. I didn't find it. Right. And so I can't, I can't take all the credit for, you know, uh, uh, you know, having this huge desire and then ultimately diving into it. And so it was, it was brought to me by, 
a gentleman who ultimately became my mentor. And the you know, funny story is that it was a girl I was dating while I was in college. It was her mom's boyfriend. So uh, his name was David and David was a local real estate investor. And I got to uh, see him, get to know him after I you know, go visit my girlfriend in their house. And um, he'd be over there every once in a while. And uh, we just chat and uh, got to know him a little better. And ultimately, you know, formed a friendship and found out what he did. He was a local real estate investor owned for the most part, single family and small multifamily properties was a buy and hold guy. You know, he had a number of rentals and he lived a very different life than what I had growing up. I mean, we never went without, you know, had great parents, always had a roof over our head and, and um, never, again, never realized that we were any different than anyone else. But ultimately, he drove a little bit fancier car, dressed a little fancier and seemed to have a lot of flexibility in his day-to-day life. Uh, you know, my parents were at work nine to five, Monday through Friday, and David would happen to be around random days of the week, right? <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was pretty neat. And long, long story short, David invited me. He, I think he maybe saw a, a, uh, a 19-year-old at that time with a, a kid with no direction. You know, just, I didn't really have, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was going to school, going through the motions, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to sink my teeth into. So going to school, attending bar part-time and, Anyway, David, you know, invited me to a, a three-day workshop down in Philadelphia. His partner couldn't attend with him. So I went, didn't know what I was getting myself into, but ultimately I knew it was like a $5,000 workshop and that he was inviting me and uh, just basically asking me to, to pay for my own hotel. And that was it. I'm like, well, that's, yeah. that's kind of a good deal. Yeah. yeah. And, and I went and I went and um, I met a lot of folks that were doing a lot of deals, flipping houses for the most part, wholesaling houses. Uh, they weren't really in the rental model. It wasn't what this boot camp was about, but ultimately I was, I was just uh, very intrigued by folks that I felt were very similar to me. You know, they weren't any smarter. They just knew something I didn't know at that point in time. And they, you know, they, they were doing deals where they were making twenty dollars and $30,000 a pop and they were doing dozens of those a year. And that just, that just amazed me. And uh, in any event, came back from that, was overwhelmed, excited. And uh, I knew that if I didn't have, I knew if, if I, if I didn't take action, which I didn't know what the next steps were really, uh, but I knew if I didn't actually dive into it that I would ultimately lose interest, you know, get back to normal routine and would forget all about it. And so I, I basically went to Dave and I and I offered my services to him. You know, he was about 25 years older than I. And so I tried to figure out where I could add value to him and his business, you know, in, in his life. And uh, technology was kind of it. And uh, aside from just helping him with, you know, the technology side of his business, you know, create a little bit more efficiencies. I, I basically did whatever he asked me to do. I was meet with contractors. I would go pick up supplies. I would, you know, draft documents, deliver documents, get things signed, anything he asked so that, you know, ultimately I could be around him. And so that's what I did. I basically spent about nonstop outside of going to school and uh, again, tending bar in the evenings. I would be at his office or out in the field, you know, probably 40, 40 plus hours a week, you know, as much time as I could be around him and just basically absorbed as much as possible. And, uh, and then at the age of 20, I bought my first property and uh, that was kind of the start of it, uh, you know, single family home. And I, I didn't reinvent the wheel. I just uh, basically, I utilized the same system that David had taught me. Again, I, I wasn't trying to, to fix because it didn't seem broken. And that's what I did, you know, my early 20s. I basically uh, accumulated quite a significant portfolio of single family and small multifamily homes. Yeah, just uh, did that all the way up until 2008. And uh, that was kind of a pivotal moment, I guess you could say. That's a nice way of putting it, of really shifting my direction moving forward and ultimately got me to where I'm at today as far as more involved, much more involved, pretty much entirely involved in commercial real estate with today an emphasis being on mobile home parks and, uh, and, and also parking lots. So, and try to give you the condensed version of the story gotcha. there. 
Gotcha. Yeah, you just you just squashed twenty years down into yeah, a few yeah. minutes. So now I appreciate that. There's lots but, of lessons, lots of failures, lots of uh, good, bad, and ugly. You know, things that happen those twenty <laughs> years. But, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that really sticks out to me is your. I mean, one, you have this opportunity come up and, and you take advantage of it. I think so many times, you know, we can be presented with opportunities, and because you've got your head down, kind of in your day to day or whatever. You know, you just, it just, these opportunities just pass us by. So you presented this opportunity to go to this conference. You realized what an opportunity that was and, and you just jumped at it. You didn't know what it was going to lead to, but you just jumped at it. So one, just taking action. And then two, the, just, isn't it amazing? Like the, how, like, like just one experience can change your perspective and, and change your mindset and send you on a totally different path and, and look at, look at what all that's, that's led to today. So I think that's pretty incredible. No, it was a pivotal moment in my life. That's really my rich dad, poor dad. And my real dad wasn't poor, but yeah. you know, it was very much a nine to five, had a 401k, you know, really didn't have any investments out of that, outside of that at all that, you know, they did own their home, but you know, had lots of liabilities and uh, just really looked at money in an entirely different way than that of, uh, of David. So it really was my rich dad, poor dad story. And uh, that really led me down the path, not just the real estate, but um, David had a background in sales. And so he was uh, very much, this is like back in the day of the cassette tapes. So he was very much into like, you know, self-help. So like Zig Ziglar and, yep. yeah, and uh, yeah. all, the, all those greats. And, um, you know, basically gave me a pile of, again, I think C- CDs were prevalent then, but like gave me a pile of like old cassette tapes and books. It was like, here, man, like this will come in handy as well. Divulge this information when you have free time. And, uh, and I think that it will, it will carry the right direction in life. And uh, so anyway, I was a huge proponent of uh, self-help and just, you know, trying to better myself uh, both as an individual and as a business owner. Yeah. I think you were so fortunate to be exposed to that so early in life, right. And be able to set on that path. I mean, I, I so I have similar background growing up I mean, very blue collar. My mom was a school teacher. Dad was, uh, you know, he was, it was kind of a, you know, a lower level employee, you know, we didn't make a ton, but, but, but everybody got by, you know, and we, we were always happy. And, and yeah, when you have that, but, but the thinking about, you know, basically there was no investing, it was just saving, right. It was all about saving, saving, saving. And so if so there was any left over that, to save. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then yeah. uh, making sure you got enough set aside to, you know, to, to, to drive down to, to Florida and do, do that vacation that we do things like that. But yeah, just a total mindset shift of, this idea of investing and using your investments to to kind of pay and, and supplement your income versus just saving and trying to build up a, a pile of cash I think just totally different. So so I understand what you're saying coming from that mindset and having that shift and that kind of uh, rich rich dad poor dad story. And I didn't know there was a different way. You know, I think that's uh, I, th- I think that's the challenge. Is um, you know, I was I, I I view myself as lucky because I was exposed to it and I wasn't looking for something different. Right? I didn't realize. Maybe later on in life I would have, but I, you know, at that point in my life, I didn't realize that there was something so drastically different than that of what I grew up with. I just had never been exposed to it. But um, I'm very grateful for David coming into my life and uh, and showing me a you know, a better way, a better path. Yeah, and, and now through your podcast and the academy and everything you're doing, you're you're showing others that better path. So I think, I mean, that's the reason that I started this podcast. Right, it, it, same probably similar is like, man, I found about I found out about this in like my my early thirties and was like, holy crap. Like, why didn't I know about this yet? 15 years earlier, I've been doing this the whole time. Like, I didn't even know that this, this way of operating kind of working outside the normal system existed. And so, yeah, I think it's, uh, the, the more people you can get in and, and tell about it, the better. So you mentioned that you, um, 
you invest in, in all, you've invested at least in, in all types of asset classes, but what's your favorite asset class? That's a great question. And, um, you know, I'd say for the past 10 years, going on 10 years, it's, it's really been mobile home parks and, uh, and it's still, you know, a favorite asset class today. I will, I will give, you know, full transparency that I, you know, as a GP, I've owned just about every type of real estate. But even today, as an LP, I'm invested in multiple other asset classes. And so uh, this isn't a mobile home parks are better conversation. You know, I, I, I think they, they definitely carry their own weight in comparison to a lot of other asset classes. But I, I love self-storage. Um, I love medical office. I do have some stuff in, uh, in, in the office space, which is still doing fine today. Uh, retail, you know, not, not a huge fan of it today, but uh, I don't have any investments. But I, I think that you can make money in just about any type of asset class, right? It's all about what is, what is uh, best aligned with your overall you know, philosophy and, uh, and ultimately what's going to help you achieve your goals, really, because the, the real estate's only a vehicle. It's just a vehicle. And there's lots of different types of vehicles, but w- which one is best suited for you and in your in your business model? So mobile home parks have been that. And aside from mobile home parks, about a year ago we started purchasing parking, and so parking lots and parking garages and in in, in downtown central business districts and tourist uh, destinations. So I'd say those two now are our favorite. Like the and, and they have a lot of similarities and uh, they complement one another quite well. Interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. So a lot of the listeners that a lot of we spend a lot of time on we do diverge from time to time. We spend a lot of time focused on a multifamily on this show. So tell me a little bit about what what are the differences in investing in a mobile home park versus investing in, in a multifamily asset. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of similarities. Uh, you know, I, I mean, they both are multifamily for all intents and purposes. They, they are multifamily properties. You know, with the mobile home park, I mean, I think some of the big differences, you know, is that there's, you know, standalone individual structures, these mobile homes. And there's a couple of different types of ownership models that exist out there. Back when most of these mobile home parks were built, like, you know, the majority of parks that are out there in the world today were built in between probably the 50s and the 70s. Like that's when the you know a proportionate portion of them were built. Back in the day when they were built, it was kind of a build it and they will come. Um, you know, a developer goes in, puts the infrastructure, and put the roads in, and then ultimately the end consumer, uh, the homeowner, buys their own mobile home and they move it into that community. And so that park owner doesn't own the mobile homes. They just, you know, their responsibility is to maintain the infrastructure. So the water, sewer lines, the roads, any lighting, common areas and things of that nature. And so in that original model, and that still exists today, there are some hybrids, but, you know, comparing that original model, and we own many parks where we don't own any of the homes inside that park. I think the big difference with multifamily is the, the operational intensity of the day to day, right? Because we're not we're not fixing you know plumbing, we're not fixing ACs or, or roofs or doing make readies or anything like that. Ultimately, that's the homeowner's responsibility. So our only job is to keep the park looking good and enforce the rules, uh, fix any infrastructure problems that that occur. Now, with that being said, the model has kind of evolved over the years, and and you know some park operators or owners have chosen to go a slightly different path than than the original, where they don't don't own any of the homes and. So I think where there's become a lot of similarities is in models where you actually own the mobile home. So there are many parks that we own today where we own a a portion, you know, a small portion of the units inside that park. So we're responsible, the rentals, uh, we're responsible for maintaining the roofs, maintaining the HVAC system and, and all the mechanicals that go with that unit. So that's a that's a much more similar model to that of a multifamily. And again, that's uh, I'd say that's probably the more common model today in the park space, where there's a you know majority of the homes are owned by the homeowner, and then a smaller 
minority is actually owned by the park as either rentals or rent to own some type of uh, you know creative financing strategy. So, but other than that, there's really there's not. I mean, just they're just they're both multifamily, but they have a lot of similarities and a few things that are different. I'd say the only big thing that sticks out. And it really comes to when you're looking to get in the mobile home park space, if you're looking to get into this business and you're looking to build some scale, and I'm going to compare it to like multifamily, you know, looking at larger complexes, 100, 200 plus unit complexes. In in the multifamily space, the common path for a lot of investors is to, whether they're syndicating or, or buying it themselves, it doesn't really make a difference, is to utilize a third party property management company to manage that larger asset. And there's no shortage of third-party management companies across the U.S. that specialize in managing multifamily assets. That is not the case in mobile home parks. Uh, there's a there's a, a couple handfuls of management companies. Most of them are you know regional. There are a few that are nationwide, but not many that uh, that have a great reputation, and not not many that ultimately would do probably a better job than what you would do yourself. So that that's where the scaling challenge comes in. Whereas with multifamily, you could go buy 2,000 doors, hand it all off to a property management company. You've got to ask the management you know, uh, responsibility. But like to buy 2,000 units of mobile homes, you have to ultimately build out your own property management company. So you got to be able to scale and build a property management company simultaneously while you're building your investment company. And, and that becomes, you, there's a certain point to where you got to make hires on the property management side and that, that business is not profitable until you get to a certain scale. And so you've got this weird period of time where you're probably feeding the beast, the property management company, in order to uh, scale that business and get past that pivotal point. Man, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's exactly where I wanted to go. As I was going to ask, how do you manage these, these mobile homes? So that's, that's a great explanation. And so as you build out that management structure, are you hiring people that live on site? Is that what you're looking for because of, of the less operational intensity or, or are yeah. you still bringing folks in that maybe don't live on site and kind of both. still manage? Okay. Yeah, both. both. So every one of our communities has an on-site property manager, community manager, whatever you want to call it. I'd say half of them live on site in the community and the other half live off site close by. And they, we have an office there. They come in to work out during the day. And so they handle things such as, you know, uh, notices being handed out, rent collection, you know, just general rule enforcement, you know, ensuring that, you know, residents are keeping up with their yards and, and, you know, the, you know, the disrepair of their homes and things of that nature. And so, uh, but then, you know, on the property management side, and so that's at an asset level, you know, and then on the actual property management side, we actually have a full-blown staff, you know, we've got an asset manager, we've got a, you know, called a regional director of property management, someone that oversees all those on-site property managers, and then, you know, a bunch of back office staff that that makes those wheels spin on the property management side. So I guess it's not much different than that of a multifamily because most multifamilies, you're going to have you're going to have some type of uh, on-site leasing agent or, you know, assistant property manager. You're going to have someone there unless it's a really small asset. But, you know, we're talking, you know, 50, 100, 150 doors. You're going to have someone, a presence there on site that's going to help manage that day to day. Gotcha. Gotcha. So from the from a mobile home perspective, as you're looking at, at the market now and you guys are are obviously still looking to acquire, I mean, what is it where is the mobile home market now? I guess like what's it what excites you about it? What also worries you about it if, if you see things coming? 
Yeah, that's 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 a great question, and you know, I'd say one of the one of the big exciting things about this industry is that it's uh, it's grown in popularity, and uh, on the flip side, of that that's also one of the downsides I see. There's a major supply demand imbalance with mobile home parks. You know, there's more; it's the only asset class that has a diminishing supply. So there's more mobile home parks that either get redeveloped or shut down for one reason or another every year than new ones that get brought online, and so we have this finite supply. That's a problem when you have you know, increased demand in a particular asset class. And so we've seen over the past year, cap rates have compressed south of that of multifamily. Comparatively speaking, if you, if you take uh, some of the secondary markets across the US and look at a B-class multifamily to a B-class mobile home park and, you know, a, a similar size and scale, there's a good chance that mobile home park probably will trade at a slightly lower cap rate than that of that multifamily. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, private equity that's come into this space, uh, lots of institutional capital, you know, and uh, you know, the likes of Blackstone or Carlisle Group, those guys, when they go somewhere and they get into a sector, they've got to be able to deploy, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in order for it to make sense for them, right? And so, and their cost of capital is very different than that of you or I, all right? They, they got a different source of capital. And so, that's definitely driven cap rates down. It's, it's driven an increased demand for, again, this finite supply. So that's it's a good thing that that those folks have come into the space. It's added a a sense of legitimacy to to our yes. industry. Mm-hmm. Um, Makes sense. It's also uh, uh, you know created banks to become aware of our sector. Whereas you know maybe ten years ago it was a little bit of a challenge to get financing uh, on some maybe uh, less than perfect mobile home parks. You had to like literally go through fifteen lenders to find one that even understood the asset class. That's very different today. So now there's no shortage of lenders that will lend on both fully stabilized mobile home parks as well as turnaround assets. And so and I think that's really only that awareness was only created from the larger players stepping into the space and and, and making everyone else aware of it. And so again, it's kind of a good thing and a bad thing because they've created a lot more competition, made it a lot harder to find deals that, you know, tend to pencil out for for groups like us. So but uh yeah, it's again kind of a, a flip flop there of uh, pro and con of uh, those big guys coming into the space. Yeah, it's uh, it's great if you're an owner, right? And your and cap rates are being compressed around you. It's a it's a little more difficult if if you're looking to buy. And so if you have both, you got to get away both sides. Yeah, and, and you know we don't ever consider ourselves sellers. You know we will we will just like I, I think everyone should always consider selling at the right price, right? There's always a price that that makes sense, even if your plan was originally to hold for X number of years. There's always a price that should be able to justify you uh, divesting of that asset. But generally speaking, we're, we're we're buyers. We're buyers and holders, and you know we have sold off a few things over the years that don't necessarily fit our portfolio today, or where we think our portfolio is going. You know, maybe smaller assets or markets that we don't really want to expand our footprint in. However, over the last uh, over the last, I guess you could say eight months, we've sold a few assets that we had had never intended on selling, only because the prices, you know, we could we could realize you know twelve years worth of gains immediately. You know, and it's like you know. How do you not justify selling? You know, and uh, and I don't see I don't see the path. I don't see the path to where you know w- what the sales price is today. What someone's willing to pay for it. I don't see the path of how they're getting there. I don't fully. I don't think the value is what they think it is. And so, in that in that instance, and that's not saying there's not better operators out there. There's surely folks that can skin that cat in a more efficient manner. But in those couple instances where we've sold. I struggle to find any sense of um, sensibility of the prices that are being paid. So, and I'm sure you've seen it in the multifamily as well. There's just, anyway. So, yeah, I mean, said. but yeah, I mean, what you said, yeah. So, you, you know, you essentially got an offer you couldn't refuse, right? 
And, uh, and when, when that happens and it's just a smart business person, it's going to take advantage of that. I mean, if you can lock in those gains, I mean, that that's a no brainer. And yeah, I mean, we've seen the same thing on the multifamily side. I mean, it just sat, it, it's way more similar, I guess, than I understood as far as what's happening from a cap rate standpoint, what's happening with competition, the, the limited, uh, limited supply and, and outsized demand. I mean, there's just a lot of similarities there. So you said you're, you're, maybe not struggling, but it's just, it's more difficult in the current market to, to find deals, uh, as you said, pencil out, right? So, so when you're looking at a deal, like what are you looking for? Like what makes that deal pencil out for you? Yeah. I, I want to know that, you know, that we can ultimately find a, a logical path uh, within the first two years to, you know, somewhere between eight to 10% cash on cash returns. And then that we can see again, a, a, a clear path over our, our, Term of ownership to a you know sixteen eighteen percent IRR, assuming that the market's a good market, and assuming that you know we're comfortable you know with the with the the asset itself size and uh, and the demographic that we serve and, and what have you. But as far as from a financial perspective, that's what we're seeking as far as uh, returns are concerned, and uh, that that's 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 what it's got to look like for us. But it's got to be a really clear path. It can't be a well if this goes exactly right and that goes exactly right over the next three years. There's a good chance we'll get there, right? Because there's a lot of variables. I, I think we're going to see a lot of variables here over the coming years. We don't know what we don't know um, as far as rates are going to go. I know that you know, the Fed keeps saying they're going to keep them low here for the next couple of years, but really hard to bank a business strategy on that. No, I think that makes a ton of sense. I mean, so you're really looking for things similar again, kind of to, to the multifamily space as far as return profiles. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting. Uh, I think the one thing that that I know that you you kind of alluded to, you said the the operational. Um, I don't remember the, the exact word you used, but essentially, it, there's less operating expenses on a mobile home park, right? For the most part, it, especially if folks own their own homes, right? So I imagine you're typically getting you're, you're seeing a better kind of NOI, better income for for the same amount of value. Is that true on a mobile home? Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, I'd say the, the average mobile, again, assuming that the mobile home park, uh, you know, the owner doesn't own any of the homes and uh, assuming that there's nothing weird with like the, you know, a lot of mobile homes, you'll find in rural areas that have, you know, self-contained wastewater treatment plants to handle the sewage. Those are very expensive to operate. They might be running on a well system. Those are expensive to operate. But assuming that's got, you know, municipal utilities, again, all the homes are owned by the the residents, the homeowners, you know, you're going to run somewhere between, I've seen them as low, maybe it's like a 30% expense ratio of gross. It's in a higher tax area, maybe 35 or 40%. So typically where your typical multifamily is probably going to run at like 50 or 55%. Yeah. I'd say, yeah, like 10% higher than that. So, so yeah, there is some, there's some value there. I'm glad you brought up rural markets because I know that that's where a lot of these mobile home parks are, are located. I, I know one thing that as, as multifamily investors, we we have gotten more comfortable with, but have, have traditionally been uncomfortable with these more rural markets, right? Where you find these mobile home parks. So how do you guys, I guess, what do you look for in a market? How do you become comfortable with maybe a smaller population size? Yeah. And, and, and we, we don't, we won't buy in a rural market. I mean, there are parks in rural markets, you know, but for the most part, like we're, we're buying in similar areas prior to that of where you're buying. And, you know, we're not going to buy out in the middle of nowhere. There's parks, you know, a lot of parks were built, if they were built 50, 60 years ago, they were built to what was back then, maybe the outskirts of town, right? Maybe it was, you know, outside the city limits. Well, you know, in the past 50 or 60 years, that city has grown City's and expanded. more than gotcha. likely now that, that, you know, the, that mobile home park is now in the city limits and surrounded by development, which is again, why there's, 
why, why there's a, you know, this finite supply because parks that have a much higher and better use today, right? Developers purchase them and, you know, whether they build a high rise or multifamily property or some other type of commercial project that deems it necessary to, to, you know, to tear that mobile home park down that, again, was once kind of on the outskirts of town, but now it's in the path of progress. So as far as like the, right. you know, yeah. you know, just like from like a minimum standpoint, like we want to, we want a population of at least a hundred thousand in MSA and that's a really small MSA, but that's kind of like an absolute floor of what we're seeking. We want to know that there's job growth, right? Like not, not just stagnant, but like we want to see that there's active dro- job growth happening in the area, right? Jo- jobs drive the demand for housing. And so again, lots of the same things you guys look for in the multifamily space that we're looking for. And a lot of times we're serving a very similar demographic. Most of the, what we have found is that a lot of the residents we serve had historically been renters, you know, apartment renters for their entire life, whether, you know, they had been renting for one decade or three decades, what have you. And, you know, they not at the point in their life where they've got the, the money for wherever they, you know, the market they live in to actually buy a a stick built home. They don't have the credit and they don't have the down payment to buy a stick built home, but they, they want to have their own home. They're kind of sick of having a, you know, a, a neighbor above them, below them, beside them, you know, having to walk from the parking lot in the rain to the, you know, the entry of the apartment complex in a mobile home park, they can have their own little, their own little standalone unit, right? They're, they don't own the land, but they own the home. They can put Christmas lights out. They can have a little covered, you know, carport area so they don't get wet when they walk in from the rain. And they don't have, you know, Susan next door vacuuming at 2 a.m. in the morning that they can hear, right? So like, but we've found that most of the, the folks that live in our communities that own their own homes were, you know, long-term renters prior to buying and now can somewhat live the, you know, the American dream of home ownership, even though they don't own the lot, you know, the lot itself. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And, and yeah, I was thinking, I actually thought you were, you were going to go a different place, but that's an interesting idea of folks that, yeah, as, as, as like you said, that stick built home, as prices continue to inflate and that becomes out of reach, this is a great opportunity for people to own their own home. And I hadn't thought about it that way, but I see a ton of value there. What, what I, where I thought you're going to go and what I was going to ask is, have, have you seen in markets that have like, extreme rent growth, right? I mean, there's markets where rents are growing eight, 10% a year. Are you seeing people that are like priced out of apartments and kind of moving maybe to a mobile home uh, as an alternative, which could be a a cheaper alternative? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I always say that you take any market, you know, pick any of the markets you guys have apartments and that you own apartments in. And I will guarantee when we're talking about a an apartment large enough to house a, you know, a family of four, right? So either a two or three bedroom apartment, I guarantee that the mobile mobile home park of the similar quality in the same market is going to be the cheapest option of housing for that family of four. It's going to be the, like it. It doesn't mean that it's the lowest quality, but it's going to in that in any given market across the country. And this is assuming that you're not going to cram a family of four into like a, a studio apartment, right? I mean, right. Something reasonable like size. I'm, I'm talking like, yeah, like it's, it's got to be like apples for apples, a two bedroom, two bath apartment to a two bedroom, two bath mobile home in a similar quality park with similar amenities, you know, swimming pool or things of that nature. You're going to find that the mobile home park is inherently cheaper than that or better, better value than that of the apartment. So, you know, the, I guess the only, you know, the one, I guess you could say the one, the, the one downside, if there is any is with an apartment, you have the flex, a little bit more flexibility as far as transient in nature. And so, you know, whether it be a 12 or what have you lease, I mean, you, you know, you can kind of just get up and go thereafter. Whereas if you own the mobile home, it doesn't mean you can't sell it. You can surely sell it, but like you have that, that burden of having to sell the home. If you decide that you want to 
move out of that community where you either sell the home or you can move the home, move the home to a different community. But you don't have that same flexibility that you might have in an apartment. So the allure, I think, to a lot of folks that live in apartments, if it's not an affordability issue, it's the it's the allure of um, not being held down or stuck to one place for a long period of time. I mean, it sounds like a lot of positives to, to mobile home investing. I appreciate you educating me on it. it it's uh, sounds like as an investor, you're able to get similar returns, but but on a product that actually is more affordable for for more people, which I think is really attractive. Well, it's, yeah, no, absolutely. And then the, you know, the, some of the other big benefits is, you know, speaking to the, you know, a, maybe the flexibility that a tenant has an apartment in a mobile home park, that equals a lot less turnover. And so if they own that home, normally they become very sticky. They stay for a long period of time. We've got tenants that live in a few of our parks that have been there for 35 years. Uh, they own their home. And then ultimately what occurs is if they decide that they, they do want to leave, you know, again, they'll either put their home up for sale, which is more common, or they can move that home. If they move that home, it's pretty expensive to move it. If they're moving it locally, they're probably going to spend four or $5,000 to move it, reset it. And so what most folks do is they just ultimately turn around and sell it. And so the cool thing about that is, is that while they have that home up for sale, they're continuing to pay lot rent. They find someone, a prospective buyer, that buyer gets qualified by the community. We do a background check, make sure they're not you know, a criminal or a sex offender or anything like that. They get qualified. They transact that sale. New owner moves in, takes over the responsibility of that lot rent. So there's never a downside or down period of time to where you're not collecting rent. So you don't have that gap of revenue that you might have in an apartment that you've got move out. You know, maybe it takes you a couple of weeks to make ready, a couple more weeks to market. And so you've got a month, maybe two months in worst case scenario of, uh, of, of no revenue in that, that particular unit. So that doesn't exist in, in, in a mobile home park to where the resident owns it, the actual home itself. Gotcha. Now, it, so- it sounds really compelling. So what, what's the downside of, of mobile home park investing? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, I think one of the, and I don't know if it's, it's never, it's never Maybe anything. it's a risk. Yeah, you know? more of a risk than anything else. I mean, obviously in, in the, you know, throughout the the U.S., there's different, different areas that have different natural disasters that occur. Florida, we get hurricanes down here. The Gulf Coast, we get hurricanes. Out West, you get earthquakes or, you know, in the Midwest, you get tornadoes. And so, you know, I'd say tornadoes are probably the biggest of all those risks is, um, you know, if a tornado rips through a mobile home park, more than likely, it's probably going to do a lot more damage than that of a of an apartment complex. And where the challenge comes into play is, right, both of them would experience vacancies if, it, if a tornado came through. However, with a mobile home park, you've got physical units that are owned by these individual tenants. There's no, there's no guarantee that they're going to bring that home back in. And so, what, what happens a lot of times, there's two, two different instances that typically occur. Number one, like all of our mobile home parks are listed. FEMA's got an ongoing list. And, and our parks are listed in any given market that we own and on FEMA's list so that if a natural disaster occurs, such as a hurricane or a tornado, and it wipes out tens or hundreds of homes in that, in that area, they, need, they got people that are displaced. They need a, some sort of temporary housing. What FEMA does quite often, pretty much every time, is in a mobile home park or an RV park, that infrastructure most of the time is underground. It doesn't get damaged, right? The water lines don't get damaged. The sewer lines don't get damaged. So that is the quickest path for temporary housing is by FEMA basically manufacturing, you know, a bunch of mobile homes and putting them in back in these mobile home parks. And so that typically occurs. And then there's, you know, there's a path to, to purchase those homes down the road once the folks move out and what have you. And so that's, that's something that we are signed up with uh, in every market that we're in. 
On the flip side, that we've got loss of income or you know business interruption insurance that would essentially pay us uh, for up to eighteen months if we experience a severe loss. And so, but really, the big challenge is is getting those lots reoccupied. Again, not get banking on FEMA to do it. You know, if you had to do it yourself, you know, more than likely you'd have to go probably buy a bunch of home inventory and bring it in, and then turn around and sell it to reoccupy that mobile home park quickly. You could wait for natural natural infill to occur for people to move a home in, but more than likely the faster path would be, and be very capital intensive, would be to go purchase, let's say you lost 100 homes and, and the folks aren't moving them back in, go purchase 100 mobile homes, bring them in, and then create a sales program to find new residents to purchase and move in. So I think that that's, that's a legitimate, that is the biggest risk. And it's, uh, if you own parks in Florida, every time a hurricane, every time they're, you know, the weather channel is following a hurricane, that's that's what you think of, right? And we don't own anything in Florida today, but we've owned stuff. Most of the time it's been inland, like central Florida, but even central Florida gets impacts from hurricanes. You know, they get high winds or tornadoes that whip up and things of that nature. And I could tell you that there's been sleepless nights here over the last five years when we owned in Florida of, you know, God, man, I just don't want to have to deal with, with this, you know, tree falling or homes getting ripped out. And, and obviously, you know, folks possibly being injured and what have you. And so, but I think there's that, that type of risk pretty much anywhere you own in the country, you know, maybe up North, the biggest risk is like you get eight feet of snow, right? It's not as bad as a tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake, but, or wildfires out West, right? You've got wildfires you get to deal with as well. So in any event, that's the biggest one and the biggest risk in mobile home parks. Gotcha. So it sounds like you, you watch the weather channel, maybe a little more closely than the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> well, it, you know, but, and I appreciate you sharing. I mean, there, there's risks with, with everything, right? So I appreciate you sharing those and it, risks are all about how you, how you mitigate them. Right. And it sounds Absolutely. like you guys have, have taken steps to do that. And, and that that's interesting. It's pretty creative. So I appreciate you sharing those things. Well, Kevin, it, it's been awesome having you on to, to share so much value before I let you go. Love to, to take you through our keys to success. I've got four questions I want to ask you. First one is, what is one question that every investor should ask their deal sponsor? So like if you only got one question as an investor. Yeah, no, that, that is a great question. And I think that, you know, I think the, the, the question that most folks are going to ask is about, you know, the track record. But ultimately, you know, I think what's more important than the actual track record is what, what is the plan B in the event? something doesn't go as planned with that that particular property, you know, financially as planned with that particular property. Like, do they have a plan in place? And if so, what is that? I, I want to know what the fallback plan is and also if they're financially capable of carrying the weight and the burden of pulling that property through any of those you know, variables that might come up. Because as you and I know that not every deal goes as planned. Some exceed expectations and, and some never meet expectations. And so what is that plan? What's that look like? And ultimately, how are they going to execute on it? Yeah, that's a great point. And like our head of underwriting, he has a, a quote that I love. He said, you know, all pro formas are wrong. He's like, <laughs> every, every underwriting is wrong. You, you can either be wrong in a good way or wrong in a bad way. So yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, what, what's plan B and, and, and how do you manage the downside risk? What are you most proud of in your career? That's a great question. You know, I, I think just generally speaking, I've got young kids and I've got a, a wonderful wife and uh, you know, I, I attribute the, the flexibility I have to spend a lot of time with them and to, you know, quality time with them. And, and I really, I wouldn't, if I just worked the normal nine to five or, you know, just, you know, hustle the normal W2, probably wouldn't have that. And I see that, that, you know, that is a somewhat of a resentment from a lot of folks that realize later on in life that they missed a lot of quality moments with their family. And so I can only attribute that quality time with my family to 
my career in real estate. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I mean, that that is really what set me down this path too of wanting to be around when my kids grow up. So I 100% get that. What is one book that everybody should read? The Go Giver. That's a, the one that comes to it's mind. A good it's probably, one. It's probably yeah. the one I've gifted more than any other book to you know friends and associates and, and employees. And uh, it's short, it's concise, and it's very impactful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then, what is your number one key to success? Full integrity. Do what you say you're going to do, and do it right. That <laughs> that is that. the most important thing. <laughs> really, what matters? It is. I mean, we talk about who your sponsor is going to be or who you're going to trust with your money, you've got to have somebody that has integrity. Absolutely. Without, without integrity, nothing else really matters. That's right. Absolutely. So Kevin, I mean, man, thanks for coming on. This has been awesome. Like I said, avid listener of your podcast. So, so this is cool for me to, to have you on and kind of come full circle here. And if folks want to, want to get a hold of you and they, they want to learn more about what you're doing, how can folks reach out to you? Yeah. One of two places, the best place to, to, to go, uh, either for company side of things, if you learn what we're doing in the mobile home park or the parking space, you can go to sunrisecapitalinvestors.com. And then as far as me personally, if you want to just uh, get a better sense of who I am and, and uh, the things I do and listen to the podcast I host, you can go to kevinbuff.com. So either one of those also has a contact us page. And so if someone wants to reach out, just go ahead and fill out one of those forms. And ultimately it, it makes its way back to me. Awesome. Once again, thanks, Kevin, and have a great rest of your day. Kent, thanks for having me, man. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, awesome. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit kentritter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.